Well, we're going to continue in our series of looking at how we live our lives, where we're at, as we've been calling them on our front lines, the places that we're at each day. And as um, David said, we're going to be looking at the story of Jacob and Steve. Oh, I thought you'd gone then, Steve. I looked up. I was a bit concerned. Steve is here. Steve is going to read our passage this morning from Genesis chapter 28. Yes, the readings from Genesis 28, beginning at verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw her stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Thank you, Steve. Having started a new term, I don't know about you, but I'm finding myself wanting a bit of a holiday. (laughs) Because, you know, well, I have to explain, holidays for me are a time to get away. Not everyone sees holidays the same, but they're a time for me to leave the ordinary, the everyday routines and the people that you see all the time and the people that you chat to, and to go somewhere different where you can be anonymous where no one knows who you are or what's going on in your life, and you can just enjoy walking around and being nobody in a new place. That's probably why I enjoy uh, going to France. We go to France quite a lot because, actually, I can't understand anything that anyone's saying, and so I just pretend that, you know, I'm in a completely different place and no one knows me, no one can understand me, although they all can understand me. I just can't understand them. But, you know, holidays are this place to get away. And so it can be really strange then when you bump into someone you know when you're on holiday. I don't know whether this has ever happened to you, but when we went on holiday in the summer, we went to Devon, and we're walking along the seafront, and Simon suddenly went, I've just seen Jen. And I'm like, who's Jen? And he went, you know, we knew her. We worked with her 18 years ago in London. And I'm like, hold on, let me wait a minute. Let me cast back. Oh, yes, Jen. There was a girl called Jen. We worked with her when we worked at the Oasis Trust. And we were really good friends with her at the time. But we hadn't seen her for 18 years. And I said, no, no, no. You are mistaken. Why would Jen be in Devon? Why would she be in Sidmouth? We haven't seen her for 18 years. Anyway, a couple of days later, 
we were by a shop door and this lady walked out and I went, oh, I've just seen Jen! And someone I know, I saw her two days ago. So we ran up to her, we sh- well, we didn't, we shouted Jen, because if it wasn't, she would have ignored us. And she turned around, turns out it was Jen. We saw her after 18 years. It was really odd, because she shouldn't have been there. We said, are you living here? She said, no. I live in London, just come down for the week. I was like, that's just weird, isn't it? It happened to us quite a few years ago as well when we were in the Alps in Switzerland and we were walking down this really steep path. There was no one around. We turned the corner and we bumped into some of Simon's family. (laughs) Cousins, we were like, hello, we're in Switzerland. They went, oh, hi, you all right? It was like we were, you know, down in Tunbridge where they live. It was really strange. And I'm sure we've all had incidences where we've been on holiday or been somewhere different and we bump into someone who maybe lives just down the road from us or we haven't seen for years we bump into them where we really shouldn't bump into them they shouldn't be there we didn't expect to have this chance meeting it really shouldn't have happened but it did and you know here in the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 28 Jacob the son of Isaac has exactly this experience Except the person that he happens to bump into is God himself. Now we might think, actually, this is not unusual, given that we're reading the Bible. You know, it's a collect, the children are all right, it's fine, it's a game, I'm sure. (laughs) So I just lost the screaming. Um, Now we might think actually it's not unusual for someone to bump into God because we're reading the Bible, aren't we? It's a collection of books all about God's interaction with human beings. But given Jacob's circumstances, it's actually quite shocking that he bumps into God when he does in this strange place. And one of the reasons it's shocking is because what has happened leading up to this encounter with God? You see, Jacob, as many of us will know, and as we, we were reminded, is a descendant of Abraham. He is the son of Isaac, along with his brother Esau. And the two of them, Jacob and Esau, are very different in almost every way. They're different in stature, they're different in temperament, they're different in the way that they have lived their lives up to this point. And perhaps because of this, and also because they were twins, there's always been a little bit of rivalry between Jacob and Esau. For a start, Jacob was the second son of Isaac. Esau is the eldest, which means, as tradition dictates, that they get treated very differently within this setting. Esau, for instance, will receive much from his father in his life. He'll receive the family inheritance because he is the eldest. He'll receive all that Isaac has to pass down to him as the eldest son. He'll also receive his father's blessing, a blessing to be prosperous and influential. The eldest son receives this from his father. He's the firstborn, only just, but he's the firstborn, and he will receive much from his father in life. Whereas Jacob, being the secondborn, only by a tiny bit, will receive very little in comparison to Esau. However, Jacob, as we've heard, is very different from Esau. Among other things, He was a very crafty character. And with the help of his mother, up to this point in our story, he has succeeded in tricking his brother out of everything that he is due, both his inheritance and his blessing. Firstly, he made a deal with Esau. This is a great deal. He swapped a bowl of stew for his inheritance. You might argue that Esau probably should have 
asked for more in return. But secondly, and perhaps most conniving, he deceived his father to steal Esau's blessing. The story in the previous chapter tells us that he did this by approaching his father, who was old and now blind, while Esau was out hunting. He dressed up as his brother Esau, wearing his clothes and covering his smooth skin with goat skin to make him seem like hairy Esau. And once more, over another bowl of stew, he tricked his father into giving him Esau's blessing. Or if you like, he robbed his brother of all that should have been rightfully his. So that when Esau returned from his hunting trip and found what Jacob had done, he vowed to kill him once his father had died. And so realising the danger that he was now in after all the things that he'd done, Jacob ran with the help of his mother. He ran away from his brother, he ran away from his father, he ran away from his home, he ran away from the land of Canaan that God had given his ancestors in an attempt to get to safety. And this is where we find him in the passage that Steve read today, on the run. To be more precise, he is partway between Beersheba and Haran in a place now known as Bethel, settling down for the night because the sun has set, it's getting dark. This is where we find Jacob on the run from his brother Esau, about to lay down to sleep. And he's in a place of no significance to him. He's in a place where nobody knows him. He's in a place where nobody has any idea that he's done all the things that he's done. He's in a place, if you like, where he's anonymous, where no one has any clue who Jacob is. Now, given all that has gone before and the state that Jacob would have been in when he got to this place, we might expect him not to sleep very well. We might think, oh, he's going to have a bit of a disturbed night, maybe a few strange dreams, like you do when your brain is trying to process substantial events that have taken place. And so it's no surprise, I guess, that this is exactly what happens in this story, that when Jacob has laid down to get some rest, he begins to dream. Only this dream on this night is a little bit different, because this dream is actually a dream that God has sent that changes Jacob's life. You see, what Jacob dreams as he settles down to sleep that night becomes perhaps one of the most famous dreams in history. It begins, of course, with a dream about a ladder, or if you like, a staircase, or a ramp, some kind of contraption, we're not sure of the exact wording, that seems to open up a connection between heaven and earth. And on this ladder, this staircase, this ramp, are angels, angels of God ascending and descending. We've got a few pictures. There's been some artists who have tried to recreate this picture. The angels of God are ascending and descending, going up and down this ladder. And at the top of the ladder is God, almighty God himself, or as he describes himself here, the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of of Isaac, who appears in this wonderful dream to reassure Jacob, to make promises to him, to offer protection and a future. Now, of course, in one sense, it's not unusual for God to appear like this. It's not unusual to get glimpses of God appearing to people in the Bible. We get it when God appears to Moses in a bush that is on fire, but it's not actually burning. 
We get it when God travels before the people of Israel in a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. We get it when an angel of the Lord appears, sits under a tree and speaks to Gideon as he's threshing wheat in a wine press. We have glimpses of God appearing in various forms to people throughout the Bible. But here in the story of Jacob, we seem to have something a little bit more. Because here we have a staircase, a ramp, a ladder, whatever it might be, something that is connecting the unseen with the seen. Not just a glimpse or a random appearance of God, but more like the opening of another world. A connection of the most ordinary, everyday place with the wonder and might of the heavenly realm. And Jacob recognises this too, because when he wakes, he's shocked to think that God was there. And he begins walking around and muttering and mumbling and saying, how come God was here in Bethel? I haven't seen him for years, and yet he turns up in this place where I don't know anyone. Fancy God being all the way out here in this strange part of the land, or if you like, I've sort of added phrases there because the Bible says, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. Jacob is shocked because Jacob knows by all convention that God shouldn't be here. God shouldn't be in this one night stopover, this ordinary bit of land, because Jacob knows that he's running away. He's lied, he's cheated, he's run away from all that God has given him. And Jacob also knows that things aren't right, that he's in the middle of nowhere, that this is not the place of God. And so Jacob doesn't expect God to appear. And yet God does. And not only that, but God opens the door of heaven to flood this little bit of earth that Jacob is sleeping in. So that when he wakes up, and recognises that God is here in this ordinary place. He takes a stone and he places it in the ground and he worships the God who is here. And then he sets out on a new life that vows to be faithful to God if God is faithful to him. Do you know, quite a few years ago, on my 25th birthday... My mom and dad promised me a gift. They said, you can have one of these experiences like driving a tank or a racing car or, you know, one of those things. Or you can have a piece of jewellery that, you know, you can keep as a... So I was like, oh, I don't know. Anyway, I decided I was going to get this watch. So I bought this quite expensive watch. I bought it in the south of France because I happened to see it and I thought, I like that. It was my 25th birthday present. And it was so it's quite special because it's something from my mum and dad. And then a few years after that, back in France, because you know, I'm always there, back in France, I was at a campsite and it was a really busy campsite. And I went in to have a shower, I hung my watch on the back of the door with my towel, blah, blah, came out, got dressed, went out for the day, enjoyed the day, went to sleep, got the next morning, went out for the day. In the middle of the second day, I thought, <gasps> my watch, I've left my watch. Where is my watch? I haven't got it. I realised the last place I'd had it was on the back of the door in the shower. And I'm like, well, it's never going to be there, is it? I mean, this ruins the story, but it's never going to be there, is it? So I went into the cubicle to which people have been in and out all day for the last two days. And I closed the door and there, hanging on the back, was my watch. Hanging there. And it was one of those... 
moments because, you know, it really shouldn't have been there. In a busy campsite in the middle of another country, a nice silver watch really shouldn't have been there. But it was. It was there. And similarly, in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the night, to a man who had, in effect, turned his back on all that he knew, God really shouldn't have been there. If we were following the traditions of all that Jacob had known and been brought up with, God really shouldn't have appeared to this kind of man in this kind of place. And yet he does. God is there, showing Jacob that actually it's not by his invitation that God appears. It's not by his desire that God opens the heavenly realm. It's not by his faithfulness and his life choices that God arrives in the right place at the right time so that he can be worshipped. Instead, it's entirely up to God what he does. It's entirely God's initiative to be where God wants to be. And all that Jacob is asked to do is to respond to what God is doing. And so that's what he does. And you know, as we follow God, in very different settings today, of course, we understand that God is with us. We talk about it all the time. We understand that God walks with us each day. We understand that in the struggles of our life, when we call out and we ask him for help, that he will be there. And often, you know, we understand when we're walking through lovely fields or over lovely mountains that we can feel God close because it all looks so wonderful. But I sometimes wonder whether we've lost a little of the surprise of God that Jacob encountered here. I wonder whether we really think that actually God can turn up in those most ordinary places when we least expect him to. I wonder whether we really believe that we can encounter God in a meaningful way anywhere. When we're hanging out the washing, when we're cleaning the toilet, when we're looking at a spreadsheet, when we're cleaning up after someone else, when we're watching a film, when we're going shopping, when we're walking from the lounge to the kitchen. I wonder whether we really believe that God can initiate a dramatic meeting in that place when we're running and hiding from something, when we're a failure and a fraud, when we're a disappointment and we're confused, when we're dog-tired and we haven't thought about him for days. I wonder whether we really believe that God can turn up wherever he wants and in whatever way he chooses. Because if this passage goes to show us anything, it shows that God is not only present in the everyday things of the world, But he's also the one that initiates the divine. He's also the one that causes it to happen so that our eyes can be open to him and we can respond, both here in church and also in the most ordinary, darkest places that we find ourselves. There's a theologian called Barbara Brown Taylor, not to be mixed up with Barbara Taylor Bradford. That would be terrible. And when looking at the story of Jacob, she says this, Human beings may separate things into as many piles as we wish, separating spirit from flesh, secular, sacred from secular, church from world. But we should not be surprised when God does not recognise the distinctions we make between the two. 
Earth is so thick with divine possibilities that it is a wonder we can walk anywhere without cracking our shins on an altar. Jacob's nowhere, about which he knew nothing, turned out to be the house of God. You see, God is working in our world. God is connecting the things of heaven to the things of earth every single day. And he doesn't care what distinctions we've made. He doesn't care how we've put things in our little order. He simply longs for us to encounter him and to respond to him. But we need to recognise that it's not our invitation that causes God to appear. It's not our desire that makes God open the heavenly realms. It's not our faithfulness and our life choices that bring God to arrive in the right place at the right time. It's God's initiative. It's God's desire. It's God's grace. And our role is simply to recognise him and to respond to what he is doing in the places in which we find ourselves each and every day.